Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Well, today's special guest on the Core Principles Podcast is the retired chief judge of the Kentucky Court of Appeals, as well as a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel and the author of Understanding God's Contracts with Mankind, and most importantly, my dad. Hmm. So, Bill Howerton, welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you, Clay. I'm glad to be doing this with you. Appreciate the opportunity. You bet. Well, you're following some luminaries. We've had some good guests, and I'm sure uh, people are going to appreciate learning about your book we'll talk about today. And you, you wrote this book, Understanding God's Contracts with Mankind, uh, with very specific timing. Could you explain uh, what motivated you to write the book when you did? Well, I know what you're asking for, and I'm going to answer that. That's an excellent question to start with, because there was certainly a kickoff point, and I'll get to that, but I think I need to give a little bit of background on this question first. Over the years, and I'll go back, say, until around 1970, I had started uh, gathering a lot of data about the Bible and certainly these uh, covenants that were required and the feasts that were required. And I was putting it all together, but uh, by the time I retired in 1996, I had a, a lot of it, and I was urged to write the book then. I didn't. And I kept putting it off and putting it off. And finally, in a nice hot summer day in 2012, July, could have been the 13th, it was on a Friday, I got a haircut that day. But I was also scheduled to get a massage. You kids, you and your brothers and sisters had given me these certificates to get these massages there. So I had it set up. But I had a meeting over here at the hospital and the masseuse's mother was one of them to be there. So I had to leave early, came on and went over, and uh, she wasn't there. So I asked where she was, and they said, well, something happened over at her daughter's place, and she had to go over there. So I wondered what in the world. So immediately after, I called over there, and her dad, uh, an attorney here in town that I know very well, answered the phone, and he explained to me what had happened. So I went over to see. Well, what had happened was that after I left, this lady was coming in to go to a beauty parlor next door. And uh, she, instead of hitting the brakes, she hit the accelerator and the thing jumped the curb and ran right through the front of the building over Elizabeth's desk and into the room that she had her table and everything set up. And that car was sitting right on top of that table. And I could see myself down under that thing, dead in the doornail. And something spoke to me, just said, you know, now look, you're not gonna live forever. I want you to write that book, so get busy. That was my marching orders, and I did. But it still took quite a while. The first publication didn't come out until about January of 2015, which is like two and a half years later. But during the first year, I completely reread the Bible, looking for things in there that tied into the specific subjects that I was wanting to recover. What motivated you to write about contracts and covenants? Well, to some extent, because I'm a lawyer. And uh, I am talking about the covenants, not just mere contracts. There's a lot of difference between a covenant and, and a simple contract. Uh, 
Of course, that was going to be one of my questions as well, if you can define the differences for us. Sure. Well, in Western civilization, we're used to contracts, and after you have one, you're looking for ways to get out of it. Covenants were lasting things, and in the law, we do have them like with covenants running with the land. You put these on there, and it's supposed to go on in perpetuity forever. Well, so do covenants. They go on from generation to generation to generation. So God made his covenant with Abraham, and it went on to through um, Isaac and Jacob and, and the sons and all, all the way down to Jesus. And then Jesus comes along as the Lamb of God finally and makes the covenant with God for everybody. And, uh, and he fulfilled these requirements of the covenant with these specific convocations and feasts that the Jews were required to have. Prior to doing this, I had made a few talks at churches and so forth in different groups. And at that time, I called it, uh, a lawyer looks at God's contract with mankind. And I didn't like that for the title of the book, so I, and I used the word understanding. Now, if you want to know why I use the word understanding, is that's the level of learning that we need to have in order to maintain our own faith and certainly to be able to explain it to somebody else. Because having a little familiarity and you understand and you can quote John 3.16 or the 23rd Psalm or something really doesn't do much of anything. The, the depth of understanding you must have to hold on to it and be able to answer other people's questions because if they ask you, one thing might lead to another. You know, you say, Jesus saves. Saves from what? How does he do that? How did he do it? Well, he died for us. Well, why in the world would anybody do that? What do you mean he died for us? Just question after question. But when you go through this book, I think you'll understand how to answer all those and know exactly what Jesus did, why he did it, and when he did it, and how he did it. We think alike, father and son. That was my next question about uh, the difference between understanding and, and mere acknowledgement or knowledge of something. But let's get into then, you, you mentioned uh, Abraham and then the covenant that went all the way through Jesus. What all are the key covenants that God has made with mankind? Well, the two, of course, are the old and the new, the uh, Abrahamic. And there were several in the Old Testament. They had one with Noah and certainly Moses and David and so forth. But the main one was the one with Abraham. And then in the New Testament was what Jesus did for us, fulfilling Passover. Now, along with some of these requirements, when you made these uh, covenants, they were made in blood. A good example, and I put in the, the book here, is the covenant between Jonathan and David. And uh, Jonathan was Saul's son. But anyway, Saul and Jonathan both killed at the same time. David then became king. Well, in those days, too, a lot of times, if there was a threat to the throne, they'd get rid of him. So David asked if there was any heir of Jonathan that he might favor. Sure enough, this son, Mephibosheth, who lived out in Lodabar, he had been crippled up right after his dad died, Jonathan died. But anyway, David brought him in there, and he fed him at his table. He restored the lands and all that Saul had had to him and uh, and continued that covenant, which shows how it works. But they did make them in blood. They would sacrifice an animal, and uh, they also had a feast with it. Well, the feast for this first one, well, this one was delayed for about 430 years, and that is when they left Egypt, and they prescribed, you will now have this convocation every year to remember what I'm doing for you. And that was uh, the feast of Passover and unleavened bread 
And then later they added first fruits that first month thing. They, they didn't have anything to give of the first fruit at that point. They were still in slaves in Egypt. But it wasn't until they went into the promised land that they added that part of it to it. But looking forward, when, uh, of course, John identified Jesus as, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He knew who he was and what he was and what he was there for. But uh, Jesus did sacrifice his body and his blood when he made the covenant with God for the benefit of everybody else. So he certainly was the Passover lamb. And he also was unleavened in the sense that he was pure. He wasn't puffed up by any of these leavens that were identified uh, in human terms, like of the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Galatians, and, and whoever. So he was pure. He was unleavened. And then by that time, they had the uh, Feast of First Fruits. And he's also the first fruits of the harvest of souls. And the way they set this up, you have uh, Passover and unleavened bread begin at the same time. Unleavened bread runs for seven days. And in any particular calendar year, it may be different with their calendar and, and the regular calendar that we use. In the year in which he died, I think I make a strong case that he actually died on a Thursday in that particular year that Passover actually started on Friday at sundown. So the preparation day was the, the day before the, uh, the 14th of Nisan. It happened to be on a Thursday. And so he died sometime around 3 in the afternoon then. But then first fruits will always be on the day after the Sabbath. Well, the regular Jewish Sabbath starts at sundown on Friday night and goes to sundown on uh, Saturday. So the day after, the morrow after the Sabbath, would begin, say, at uh, 6 o'clock or thereabouts on Saturday night and go till 6 o'clock on Sunday. So it was sometimes that Sunday morning that Jesus was resurrected and became the first fruits. It will always be on what we call a Sunday, simply because it doesn't matter when Passover is or unleavened bread starts, but uh, every year, first fruits will always be on, and resurrection day will always be on a Sunday. But the others may vary. Now, with a contract, and then, of course, with a covenant as well, it is an agreement. So would you explain with the old covenant with Abraham, what was the agreement? Well, he would give them a land. He would give them a people that would be like the stars in the sky or the sand on the beaches, just uh, grow and grow and grow, and would be protecting them from then on. And that was the the covenant with Abraham. And what was the responsibility uh, for that party, Abraham and his descendants? They were to obey and uh, follow the the commandments of God, which he gave them at Sinai, the ten. Love God, all your heart and soul and so forth, your parents, and then the other things that would be like your neighbor, where you don't hurt anybody, you don't murder, you don't lie, you don't steal, you don't covet, and things like that. And so they had to be in, in covenant. He had several other laws for them. Uh, agriculturally speaking, they were supposed to uh, let the land lie fallow one every seven years. Of course, every 50 years, they had a jubilee, too. It'd be uh, That was forgiveness of debts and so forth and re- restoration of properties for people. But the idea that you had to let that land rest for seven years, they didn't do that. As a matter of fact, they didn't do it for 70 years 
or 490 years it was. So you count back seven into 490, it would be 70 years. So when they were taken into the Babylonian captivity, they were there for 70 years and God let that land back in Israel rest for that full 70 years because they were off in captivity. Then later they did come back. So there are certainly uh, blessings in covenant and there are curses. You disobey, you get punished. And if you obey, you get you get blessed. Now with the new covenant, there are different obligations for each side or different offering and different responsibility. What's the difference there? Well, I think we're basically the same, although now the, with the new covenant, it applies to everybody, not just the Jews. It applies to all mankind. So the Gentiles were then included in this blood covenant between Jesus and God. And uh, we are, again, though, as Christians, to obey Jesus and to live by his commandments, to love one another. And uh, if we are, we're blessed. And if we're not, and if we don't, we have to believe in him too. That's the, the key to salvation is faith in Jesus Christ, belief, and then just the grace of God is what actually allows us to, to be blessed. And not everybody's going to be. Uh, it made it quite clear. You take the, the, the ten virgins, for example. When Jesus came back, or the, the master came back to get his bride, only five of them were acceptable. They were ready. And the same thing is going to be for the church, which is the bride of Christ. And when he comes back, if they're not ready, and if they're all a big mess and they're apostate and everything else, some of those are not going. But uh, the ones he's coming back for are going to be those that are in uh, in real covenant with him and keeping the covenants and the requirements. Now you use a term in your book, a third party beneficiary. Can you explain what that is and how it applies? A third party beneficiary is one who's not a party to the contract, just as we're not between a party to the contract between Jesus and God, but he did it for our benefit. So we are the undeserving third party beneficiaries of that agreement. We didn't do anything to do it. He did it all. But in law, sometimes people are beneficiaries as third parties because other people made a contract or covenant, and it was for their benefit. They didn't have anything to do with it, didn't put anything into it at all, but they they were the beneficiaries of that. So that's third-party beneficiary. Now, given the fact that the Old Covenant requirement for Abraham and his descendants was to obey the law and that standard was beyond what we humans as sinful beings are capable of doing we would always fail at that and when jesus made the covenant on our behalf and fulfilled the law on our behalf we are still sinful people how do we have assurance then that we get the benefit that we all would seek Well, if we obey the requirements that we believe in Jesus Christ, we accept him and his sacrifice that he did for us and our benefit, and we can consider that his blood washed over all of the sins, just covered them up and washed them out. Now, we are sinners. There's no way in the world that I can do anything to buy my ticket, so to speak, to the afterlife in heaven. I've got to uh, be in relationship with Jesus Christ and by the grace of God. And that's, that's what's required for 
my salvation or anybody. And with sin being that thing that separates us, Jesus actually raised the bar impossibly high for us, right? When uh, in the Mosaic law, it was understandable and knowable. And for example, one of them was do not commit murder. Jesus raised that standard impossibly high, saying if if you even speak out in anger against someone, you're just as wrong. And all of the commandments, Jesus moved those all the way into our heart to say, you know, if you even feel this way about somebody, you are committing the sin. So he made uh, what was already an impossible law to fulfill completely impossible so that we would have complete dependence on what he was going to do in our place. Isn't that extraordinary? It is. And that's exactly right, Clay. You, you hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, the, the bar is so high, there's no way that, that people can can meet that that requirement. But if you recognize that and ask Jesus forgiveness, he'll wash him away. And he also used the word uh, repent, which means to turn around and go the different direction. Can you talk just a moment about in modern times, it seems like the only sin that some people recognize is hypocrisy. But given the fact that we are all short of the standard, anytime anyone says there is a standard to which we should ascribe, then we are necessarily being a hypocrite. How do we reconcile that and how do we deal with that? I guess you're right in saying that uh, we're all hypocrites, even for thinking somebody might be a hypocrite or that we're not living up to what we say. But uh, I don't think there's any way truly to totally reconcile the two. It's just you need God's grace and Jesus's forgiveness. So even though we can't live up to the standard, it's still appropriate for us to say to one another, there is a standard and we should strive for it, even though we're all going to fall short. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, however much hypocrisy is involved with that, we just got to get over it because if we decided, well, because we're all forgiven for everything, we should just do our worst all the time. That's obviously not going to be uh, a good way to live. You know, one thing I did mention in the book too, that sort of pertains to pastors who are the leaders and they are supposed to know what the standards are and, and, and be leaders in their own congregation. But so many now have become what I call apostate. They've just gone politically correct on all these things and they're leading their flock in the wrong direction. Well, as we're wrapping up, I wanted to highlight one thing that you uh, quoted from the Bible from uh, Peter, that we should all be ready to give an answer for why we have the faith that we have. What is the main thing that you want readers of your book to to get out of it? Well, I think that the book provides a good source for individuals or groups that want to study together. And then they will be able to give an answer to somebody. That's why they need this level of understanding. But uh, throughout the book, uh, there's a chapter in there on the Bible, which is our main source. Is it valid? Yes, and I've got support for that. There's a chapter, of course, on the Old Testament, and then another on the New Testament. I've got one in there on the Holy Spirit, and then what Christians believe, and then look into the future. This one feast that hadn't been fulfilled yet is the one of Feast of Tabernacles, which is a 
comes at the time when you have the harvest at the end of the year. Well, that'll be the same type of thing that goes on toward the end times when they do come, and they may be closer than we think. All right. Well, there's a lot in it. We've only scratched the surface, so uh, very highly recommended, of course, listeners. The book is called Understanding God's Contracts with Mankind by J. William Howerton. And, Dad, you have uh, another uh, point you want to offer. I'd like to make this comment. I'm thinking about uh, rewriting the book, adding one word to the title, just revisited, because there's some areas in there about this personal relationship with Jesus Christ that I want to emphasize a little bit about how you can start having one and, and recognize when when God does answer a prayer or something. It's not just a coincidence. But uh, there are some things that have happened that I want to put in there that I think would add a lot to the book. Also, in redoing it, I want to bring the cost down. Even the the publisher set the price on this thing at $17.95, which is just, uh, I want it coming down to where it's like at the most about $12 or so for a paperback and no more than 20 for the other. So you can get it online, however, at say Amazon, if you have a Kindle or a Nook, if you have Barnes and Noble, and that's about $3. So that's okay. Hopefully listeners, as I have today, you've learned uh, a lot about the legal terms behind some of these ideas, but more importantly, the uh, the real reason for these contracts, these covenants that last and last. And of course, the, the covenant that Jesus brought in, uh, ushered in, lasts forever and uh, is for our eternal salvation. So our dearest hope is that everyone will accept what Jesus has done for all of us. And thanks very much. Thank you, Clay. Now it's time for our special historical segment, featuring a practical example of how core principles are applied. On the 25th of August, 1814, in Washington, D.C., the British Army was advancing on our capital. They had already destroyed the White House, yet they lacked sufficient troops to occupy the city. British General Robert Ross was determined to cause as much destruction as possible. He wanted to spare civilians, though, so he sent a party under flag of truce to negotiate that withdrawal. Enraged by the destruction already wrought by the British, some Americans fired on that party. Now General Ross sought vengeance and retaliated by setting fire to the buildings housing the Senate and the House of Representatives. The British attack on Washington, D.C. lasted only another 26 hours, but the destruction was long-term. It would be 16 years until the Capitol reconstruction was complete. We often feel wronged by others. A base instinct we possess might seek retaliation. But Jesus set the perfect example for us, described in 1 Peter 2, 23-25. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges rightly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July. 
L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find her music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.